Well, good morning. Good to see you today. My name is Josh, and uh, one of the pastors here. Welcome to all of you joining us online. Really glad uh, that you can be with us as well this morning. And uh, this week, I had the privilege, uh, Pastor Dave joined me. We went to the EFCA, uh, our denomination, the National Theology Conference, which was held in the Chicago area at Arlington Heights Evangelical Free Church. And uh, we were there for the week, uh, just kind of drinking from the fire hose, listening to, to different guys speak and uh, teach deeply from God's word and, and topics of theology. Uh, and, you know, today it was encouraging to me because also today we're in the midst of a series where we're doing uh, something very similar. We're working through our statement of faith. And uh, so we're going to be into more doctrine again this morning, like we have the last few weeks. We're at 0.5 out of 10 today. And uh, one of the things I should say this morning is that as we continue and look at these doctrines, these things we believe, today, if today's isn't true, then we can just pack the whole thing up. Everything else is a waste of time if the point we're talking about today isn't in fact true. Uh, It's a huge waste of time. And um, we're gonna dive into some major doctrine this morning. And so I want you to be ready for some big uh, churchy words, okay? Some theological terms. I told you I was at a theology conference this week. So I'm coming back and now I've I've just got them all revved up. So I'm gonna be sharing big words with you today. You good with that? I'll help you understand them and we'll talk through them. Uh, But before we jump in, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor briefly, just somebody near you, and tell them what your favorite book of the Bible is. And listen, if you don't know, you can just be honest and say, I don't know. It's okay. So just ready? You got two seconds, two, three seconds ready? Go. Tell them your favorite book of the Bible. All right. Now, how many of you said Leviticus? Anybody say Leviticus? I didn't think anybody probably did, but guess where we're going this morning? Leviticus. And uh, Leviticus is kind of one of those books that as Christians, we tend to uh, maybe gloss over or skip over. I mean, if you, uh, if you do a reading plan through the Bible, maybe you've tried to do this before. I'm guessing if you've ever tried to do that, the books that you've most likely just kind of, well, let's just hurry up and get past this is either Leviticus and or Numbers. You know, all the genealogies and then uh, just, just the way uh, their culture of, of animal sacrifice and religious ritual, it just seems so remote to us, doesn't it? It just doesn't, it doesn't always compute and doesn't make sense. So it's, it's kind of easy just to, to skip over when we don't understand it. Well, um, the reality though is that in skipping over Leviticus, you're skipping over uh, yeah, some incredible truth that God has for you and for me. And uh, something that shows up in Leviticus chapter 16, right in the center of Leviticus, highlighting its importance, is something maybe you've heard of. It's called the Day of Atonement. Maybe you've heard that term before, even if you're not uh, regularly in church or whatever else. Or maybe if not that, you've heard the term uh, Yom Kippur, which means in Hebrew, Day of Atonement. Well, that comes from Leviticus chapter 16, and that's where we're going uh, to to launch from this morning. We'll be in a couple other passages as well, but that's primarily where we're gonna camp out today. 
And uh, so with that, you can turn there if you like. Uh, otherwise, it'll be on the screen. But I'm going to pray, and then we're going to start uh, unpacking Leviticus 16 to, together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us. And Father, thanks for uh, Jesus, your atoning work on the cross, as we'll see today. Um, for dying in our place, uh, taking the penalty we deserve, and then in return, uh, giving us life that we don't deserve. Holy Spirit, would you teach me and teach in, uh, and teach through me, excuse me, even as I teach your word? Um, might we leave changed, encouraged by your truth? And Father, I pray specifically even for those who've maybe never trusted you, that today they might see in your word the, the truth of who you are and, and might turn to you in faith that you'd be drawing their hearts. Father, thanks for Jesus. Guide us, I pray, and by your spirit. Amen. Well, uh, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament comes right after the book of Exodus. And uh, one of the things to understand really like the purpose of Leviticus and even where we're headed this morning, it's, it's helpful to know a little bit about the book of Exodus. So I'm gonna take you back even a little farther. In the book of Exodus, God's people, it begins with God's people in the land of Egypt. And they've been there for about 400 years. And over those 400 years, uh, they've been uh, made into slaves. And uh, they're, they're slaves under Pharaoh and they've multiplied. It's a huge nation of people, the Israelites. And uh, they're suffering. And so God sends a guy by the name of Moses to rescue them and to lead them out to freedom. Because he had promised long ago to their ancestor Abraham to give them a land, the promised land. He'd promised that land to them. And Moses is gonna be the one to lead them out of Egypt and toward that land. And so they take off, they, they cross the Red Sea. Maybe you know uh, some of those stories. And uh, one of the things that happens is God leads them. He's in their midst the entire time as a pillar of cloud by day and fire at night. And uh, he gets them to Mount Sinai where he gives Moses uh, his top 10 list the Ten Commandments. And he gives them a ton of other commandments as well, but all of those relate to how these people are now supposed to live, who were slaves, how they're supposed to live as free people in the presence of God in the place that he's leading them to. And so uh, one of the things, though, that God does is he says this in Exodus chapter 25. He tells Moses, he says, let them make me a sanctuary. Sanctuary just means a place that's set apart. Uh, a sanctuary, a place that I may dwell in their midst. Now, I think dwell in their midst, what's that mean? Is that kind of like, just like spiritually, he's just gonna be around them, like he's just there, like is this kind of mysterious, what is this? Well, I'll show you something here just briefly. In, in Hebrew, you don't need to know how to read it other than just to look at the symbols here, these letters. This is the Hebrew word for dwell. And there's, if you add a letter to the front of it, there's another Hebrew word that means dwelling or tabernacle. And so the place that God is going to dwell is the dwelling, which means, which is the, the tabernacle. Well, what's the tabernacle? Maybe you've heard of that too. The tabernacle was this big portable worship center that, that they carried around with them in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. It's God gave uh, very specific instructions on how it should be made and the materials to be used. He gifted uh, a couple guys who are good designers to build and make all of it. And uh, anyway, this would be set up in the middle of their camp and it would be where they would worship God. 
And there were, the, there were the courts with the curtain around it. And then in the middle, uh, the main portion of the tabernacle with the holy place and then the most holy place or the holy of holies. Maybe you've heard that term. And in the holy of holies was the ark and that was where God's presence would live among them. Uh, that's where he would dwell with his people. Now this is both exciting and terrifying because one of the questions that Exodus really kind of raises is, okay, so uh, this is great. God's gonna be among his people, right? But uh, God is holy and just and perfect and uh, people are sinful and messed up and how can a perfect holy God live in the midst of a sinful people? And that's a question that's begging to be answered in Exodus as God says, I'm gonna dwell with you. And what we see in Exodus is, is both of these things at play because we see that God's presence is with his people, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire at night as he leads them across the wilderness to the promised land. Uh, when, when they get to Mount Sinai, uh, we, we see God's presence descend on Mount Sinai as a cloud. This is a picture of a volcano in Mexico from about six years ago. And just the description, if you go read uh, when they get to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, it reminds me a lot of what maybe Mount Sinai might have looked like with God's presence descending. Well, uh, Moses had gone up Mount Sinai into something that from what's described might have looked like this volcano. And he's there for 40 days and the people think, what happened to him? What would you guess? You know, if, if I took off up that mountain and I wasn't back for six weeks, be like, yeah, he's dead. Something happened, he tripped, he fell in the volcano, something happened. Well, uh, that's what the people believe. They believe that Moses has died and so then they start crafting their own God to worship. They, they create a golden calf that they begin to worship and now all of a sudden, God's closeness, while it was a great blessing, is now problematic because of their sinfulness because there's limits on how close they can get to Mount Sinai. And now that they've rebelled and built this golden calf, uh, Moses, or Moses is told by God while he's up there, uh, God's like, hey, you need to go down and take care of some things with these people. And in fact, you just need to pack everything up and take off and head to the promised land. Just, just go. And I'm not going with you. Because if I go with them, I'll kill them all. And that's basically what he says. I'll, I'll kill them all. I'll kill him. I can't. I cannot be with them. Well, uh, Moses, you know, he comes down and he's so angry. He smashes the tablets, and uh, that God had written His law. And Moses had a little bit of an anger problem. He wasn't perfect by any means either. And uh, they end up crying out to God to relent, and He does then stay with them. But something has to be figured out here if they're going to dwell in his presence, or more, more accurately, if he perfectly and righteous is going to dwell with them. Something has to happen here if that's gonna happen, do you see? And so uh, the book of Leviticus then really teaches us and, and lays out the Levitical law, how they're to relate to God in their presence. How is this holy God gonna live among them? And that's what Leviticus lays out for us and for God's people. And uh, we're gonna be in Leviticus chapter 16, but one more thing by way of introduction before we get to, to the text. 
Uh, I think it's helpful if we lay out kind of some key terms. I told you, I was gonna give you some big words today, right? Some of these you'll know, some might be new to you. Uh, but let's talk about just a few key terms, get them on the table, because so, we're gonna come back to these over and over this morning. Uh, first off, the righteousness of God or the justice of God. You can use righteousness and justice really interchangeably uh, in describing God's character. Uh, ultimately, here's how I think you would define this and here's how uh, I understand it and the Bible teaches it, is that God's righteousness is that he, is all, he always acts in accordance with what is right. And he himself is the final standard of what's right. So if you're like, okay, God always does what's right. Well, how do you know what's right? Well, he's right. So he can only act in accordance with who he is, with his character. Everything God does is right. That's his righteousness, his justice. Now, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, so I need some like uh, 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 kind of memory devices to remember things. And so one of them for God's righteousness, you might think like this, this might help you, it's helped me. Just think God's perfect rightness. His righteousness is his rightness. He always and only ever does what is right. The Bible describes him as right. The, the rock we read in Deuteronomy, speaking of God, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, are right. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And we see in, in Genesis as uh, uh, people cry out, they, they say, shall the judge of all the earth do what is, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, what is right? They're begging God to, to act in accordance with what's right, with who he is. Uh, and then in Isaiah, God says, I didn't speak in secret. I, I didn't say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Because that's the only thing he can do. Because it's who he is. He's always perfectly, completely Right? Now, one of the things with his rightness, though, sometimes we hear about God's vengeance, his wrath for sin, and we think, how can a God who I keep hearing loves me, I see it on the sign as I come in that I'm loved, isn't that unloving and unlike him then to be wrathful and vengeful? Well, no, actually, it's an expression of his rightness. Because every way that he responds is right. So his response to my sin is right when he disciplines me or punishes sin. Do you see? If he didn't do that, then his rightness, his righteousness would be a total sham. He has to act according to who he is. And so he has to deal with sin. And if he's gonna live among these people, something has to be done to... Uh, well, that's our next word, to um, atone for their sin. Atonement, here's another word for you. Atonement. Uh, atonement is simply this, uh, a reparation or a repair uh, for wrong or injury to right a relationship. So atonement rights a relationship. It's there, there's something that's been violated, something that's been injured, and there's got to be some sort of reparation to repair that relationship. Do you see? Something has come between two parties. Some violation. 
And one of the ways to remember what atonement means, I'll give you another memory device, is if something comes between them to divide them, you might just take that word and divide it out and think at one mint. That, that atonement is when what was injured and separated becomes one again, that moment. That's atonement. Well, the Bible speaks a lot about atonement and it speaks about a specific type of atonement. So let's just add a couple words onto this one, shall we? Uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Were you talking about that over your breakfast this morning? You know, this came up on the drive here. Uh, probably not in those words, but it, it may have come up for you this morning. Here, here's what it means. Uh, penal substitutionary atonement is a type of atonement where it includes both a penalty that's paid, penal, penalty paid, and a substitution made, substitutionary. So there's a penalty that's paid in, in trying to bring things together again, to right the wrong, and a substitute is made. Some, someone, something is substituted in the payment of that penalty. All right, take a deep breath. I told you I was at a theology conference, you're getting big words. But now let's, let's jump into the text, Leviticus chapter 16. And specifically, what's happening here in Leviticus chapter 16 is called the Day of Atonement. And what we're going to read about is something that God is commanding here to happen every year among his people, to, to, to make atonement, to, to make reparation, to bring together he and them in relationship, to, to, to fix what's been injured. Here's how we begin in Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, uh, if you don't maybe know uh, much about the Bible, it's okay. Let me help you understand here. Moses and Aaron are brothers. And uh, Moses is the guy that God used to lead all of his people out of Egypt. And he uses him. He's a great leader. And his brother Aaron serves as a mediator between the people and God. He's the high priest. He goes before God for the people. And uh, Aaron had two sons. And these two sons, if, we'd had, if we had time, we'd go back a few chapters in Leviticus 10. Uh, these two guys uh, try to go into God's presence in the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies in a way that God said they shouldn't. Remember, Leviticus is giving us specific instructions for, for how to interact with a holy God in their midst. And these two totally violated it. And so when they try to go in, just plainly on their own. Uh, some commentators, as you read the whole context, think potentially even they were drunk and the, 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 the fire of the Lord, it says, came out from behind the curtain that separated it and consumed them. <laughs> and then it says, and Aaron didn't say anything. He kept silent because he was like, huh. You know, I mean, what's he to say? They clearly violated what God had told them not to do. So uh, with that context in mind, that's happened already. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come just at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that's on the ark. Remember, that's where God's presence is. So that he may not die. For I'll appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The mercy seat is, is just right in here, uh, the ark. And don't just come in there anytime, Aaron. Is what God is telling him. 
But this is how he should come into the holy place. This is the way Aaron shall come into the holy place. Uh, now try to keep track of the animals here with me, okay? So with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, and he shall put on, so he's got a couple animals, he shall also put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist. God had given uh, specific instructions for the type of clothing the priest and the high priest should wear. And this is what this is going through. And he wear the linen turban and these are the holy garments, the garments that are set apart for this purpose. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So uh, Aaron, take a bath, get cleaned up, put on your good clothes, then you can approach. And by the way, grab a bull, grab a ram, and he shall also take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and then one ram for a burnt offering. So he's got a bull, ram, two goats, and a ram. You see? Well, Aaron, uh, the first thing he should do is he shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. Because Aaron is their representative before God, but Aaron himself is sinful because he's human. And so Aaron's got to atone for his own violation of his relationship with God. And so uh, you'll notice that the, the offering he makes is one where there's a penalty made. There's a, a bull that dies because the wages of sin is death and blood is shed but that bull pays the penalty. He's substituted in Aaron's place. Aaron doesn't die, the bull does. Do you see? Penal substitutionary atonement. There's a penalty paid, a substitute made, and he makes atonement for himself, and then also he's gonna make atonement for his house, for, for all the priests, because all the priests are sinful. Just like in our church, all the pastors are sinful. Do you know that? We are. And we need atonement as well. And so uh, Moses, or excuse me, Aaron takes the bull and sacrifices it for himself. And then, uh, well, a uh, little background on how this would have happened. Uh, Old Testament scholar, a guy by the name of Ray Dillard, he describes the intense process that led up to this day for the priest, for the high priest specifically. A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion. He was quarantined. Probably didn't have a COVID test. No, I'm just kidding. He was put into seclusion. He was taken away from his home into a place where he was completely alone. Why? Well, it's so he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything that was unclean. Uh, clean food was brought to him and he'd wash his body and he'd prepare his heart during that week. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night, the high priest did, praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, he bathed head to toe and he dressed in pure, unstained white linen. And then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God, the bull, right? That's what he took in with him, that's the animal, to atone or pay the penalty for his own sins. Uh, after that, he came out, he bathed completely again. 
a new white linen was put on him. And he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of his house, for all the priests. Then he came out and completely bathed again. And then this time he would take the two goats and go and atone for the sin of all the people before the Lord. A third time he would do this. And all of this was done in public. The, the temple was crowded the, around the tabernacle and this time it would have been crowded. And those in attendance watched closely. There was a, a thin screen that he bathed behind but the people were present. They, they saw him bathe. They saw him dress and go in and come back out. He was their representative before God and they were cheering him on. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before a perfect and holy God. Well, let's keep reading that third time when he goes... Verse seven, then uh, he shall take the two goats, this is when God was commanding all this, and he shall set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. So casting lots, uh, you might think kind of like rolling dice. I mean, just see how, how does it land, which one, flip a coin sort of thing, right? One for the Lord, one for Azazel. And Aaron then shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Let me circle back and unpack this. We've got two goats, right? Two goats on the day of atonement. <clears throat> Aaron's already sacrificed for his own sin, made atonement for his sin, and then again for the sin of the priests. And now he's doing this for all the people. <clears throat> and he takes the two goats, he casts lots, and one of them fell for the Lord. This first goat would have been the sin offering. Uh, here's how this would have went down. He would have cast lots, chosen the goat. Aaron would have uh, put his hands on the head of the goat, uh, prayed to the Lord, uh, casting symbolically all the sins of all the people onto this animal. And then with his hand on his head, he would have slit its throat and then sacrificed it to the Lord and taken blood into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled it on the altar as a penal substitutionary atonement for the people's sin. You're like, that's vile. Yeah. And he's in total white. You can imagine how stained his garments became. But what did it give to the people who saw it? A really clear picture of how vile their sin is. And our sin is my sin is. It's hard to escape it, isn't it? Well, this goat, the sin offering, you might uh, call it the, the, the goat of propitiation. There's a big, another big theological, biblical word. <clears throat> and uh, ultimately what propitiation means is to take away wrath. Or you might say to satisfy wrath, to exhaust. That's maybe even the best word, to exhaust wrath completely. 
And, and so uh, this, this goat is the propitiation. He takes away, he satisfies, he exhausts God's wrath for sin, for the sin of the people. The wrath that they deserve, instead of falling on them, falls on the goat. The penalty for sin is still paid. Death happens, blood is shed, but there's a substitute in their place, do you see? Penal substitutionary atonement. And uh, that word propitiation, again, another just maybe word thing to help you remember. I know I'm kind of weird. You might just think propitiation, that that goat took the full punch of God's wrath, all of it, for their sin. Propitiation, propitiation. That's how, how I learned that. Uh, there's a second goat, though. The next one is said, uh, this goat is for Azazel. Now, uh, Azazel, it's not entirely clear what Azazel means exactly. It could be a place. It could be something like that. But the most likely understanding of it and the traditional understanding of it is that it's a compound word in Hebrew, <clears throat> combining goat with going away, Azel. And the word would mean then the goat that goes away, the scapegoat goes away. And so uh, the same thing happened where Aaron would uh, take the second goat now and he would put his hands on its head. He'd pray, he'd uh, metaphorically, symbolically put all the sins of the people on this goat. But now instead of slitting this one's throat, do you know what would happen? They'd chase it out of town. And somebody actually was assigned like, you know, you make sure that goat never comes back. Get him as far away as possible and never to return ever. You might think of this goat then as the goat of expiation. That's the theological term, which means uh, to take away sin. Take away sin. And if you need some help remembering this one, just expiation, this one's easy, exit. Sin exits, stage left, right? It just, it goes. Now, uh, you remember what John the Baptist said to Jesus? Jesus is the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Part of Jesus' work we're gonna see here in a moment is this work of expiation, of removing our sin, of cleansing us. But ultimately here, we've got two goats. <clears throat> and so to understand biblical atonement, you just have to have a basic grasp, at least, on this idea of propitiation and expiation. And they're kind of like Siamese twins, they're, they're joined together, inseparable from one another on the Day of Atonement, but they're distinct as well, aren't they? One takes and exhausts God's wrath, one uh, takes sin away and cleanses. Well, um, these goats on the Day of Atonement, they just cast a great shadow forward onto the work of Christ, but uh, there's, there's other times this happens in the Old Testament. Fast forward with me about a thousand years to the prophet Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah writes a book of the Bible as well. And in Zechariah uh, chapter three, uh, the Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, he's, he's writing uh, about a thousand years after the first day of atonement, about 500 years before Jesus uh, is born. And Zechariah has a vision. He has a vision of the high priest of his day, a guy by the name of Joshua, different Joshua than the one who followed Moses, but the high priest Joshua. 
And, and he has this vision of Joshua, and he sees Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3, and he sees him uh, dressed and about to enter into the Holy of Holies, <clears throat> where we read the angel of the Lord, uh, which I believe is Jesus, is seated on the throne, and then to the side is Satan, who's accusing him. But uh, Zechariah is looking at this, and, and remember how the ritual of the, the washing and the cleaning and the clean clothes and going into the Holy of Holies. Well, when Zechariah sees Joshua, the high priest, he doesn't, he notices at the last minute, he's, he's not wearing clean clothes. His, his clothes are filthy. In fact, they're, they're just totally covered and stained with human excrement. That's what he sees. And just as Zechariah is about to despair because he knows his Bible, he knows what happened to, to Aaron's sons when they went in unworthy and in the wrong way. He's about to despair when he hears the Lord speak. And uh, he hears this in Zechariah 3 verse 4, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, to Joshua he said, see, <clears throat> I've removed your iniquity from you. Jesus says, and I will clothe you with rich robes, with pure robes. And, and in verse nine later, he says, I will remove the iniquity of, the, of that land of all the people and I'll do it in one day. I'll do it in one day. Now, God's given Zechariah really a vision of how all of us, even the most devout, most religious among us, how we look to God as we approach him. And uh, there's this promise to remove our defilement and clothe us in purity. Isn't that great news? Notice Joshua here, the high priest, he didn't do any of it. Jesus did it all. He removed his garments, he gave him new garments. Well, uh, another pastor, Tim Keller, explains it this way. <clears throat> Uh, of how this kind of cast a shadow. Centuries after Zechariah, there was another Joshua who showed up. Another Yeshua, Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, it's the same name. Do you know that? Uh, the name uh, Yeshua in the Old Testament is the name Joshua in English, and it's the same name. That's what have, that would have been Jesus' name. He would have been called Yeshua as a, as a little boy, Yeshua. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, but he, this, uh, another Joshua, Jesus, he staged his own day of atonement. One week beforehand, Jesus began to prepare. See, Jesus is our mediator. He's our high priest. He's our representative before God. And just like the high priest in the Old Testament would have prepared for a week for the day of atonement, Jesus does the same thing. And then the night before, Jesus, he, he didn't go to sleep just like the high priest didn't go to sleep. But what happened to Jesus was exactly the reverse of what happened to Joshua, the high priest. Because <clears throat> remember what happened to Joshua? His filthy garments were taken off and he puts on clean garments. Instead of cheering him on, uh, nearly everyone he loved, who loved Jesus, betrayed, abandoned, or denied him. And when he stood before God, instead of reading, receiving words of encouragement, the father forsook him. Instead of being clothed with rich garments, pure garments, he was stripped of the only garment he had, which was pure. He was beaten and he was killed naked. 
and he was bathed in human spit. Friends, before God, we're like the filth-covered Joshua that Zechariah saw, but because of a new Joshua, Jesus, who was perfect, who instead of uh, taking off filthy garments and putting on clean, he took off clean garments and put on our filthy garments and died the death that we deserve on the cross, paying the penalty that I deserve for my sin before a perfect and holy God, substituting himself in my place on the cross, a penal substitutionary atonement. Do you see? And uh, think back to the day of atonement. Then all of that cast a long shadow toward Jesus as well because Jesus is the, the lamb of propitiation. He takes the full punch of God's wrath that I deserve for my sin and, and God exhausts all of his wrath for Josh's sin on Jesus. And Jesus takes it all. And Jesus is not only the lamb of propitiation dying in my place, as my substitute, he's the lamb of expiation, the goat of expiation. He, he takes my sin, like John said, behold the lamb of God who, who takes away the sin of the world. He cleanses me and he clothes me in pure garments and now I'm new. Now I'm new. Do you see? Friends, that's what happens as we trust Christ. Second uh, Corinthians tells us, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther, commenting on this verse, says that Jesus on the cross, who knew no sin, became sin. He put on our filthy garments. He became the pervert. He became the murderer. He became the adulterer. He became the thief. And he took all of my sin and he gave me all of his righteousness, which Luther then calls this great exchange. And that's what Jesus does for us. Well, uh, you might think of it then this way. The gospel ultimately is Jesus in my place. It's just the simplest way to say it. It's Jesus in my place. In my place is my substitute, paying the penalty I deserve, giving me the life I don't. You know, today's uh, Jersey Sunday, right? Because it's the Super Bowl. Here's some of my jerseys. I've got an Iowa State jersey. I went to Iowa State, studied architecture. I'm a big diehard Cyclone fan, probably the only one in the county. But when I put that on, that's, that's my team. I'm, I'm clothed in cardinal and gold. I've also got this old jersey. I just about tried to wear it today, but I'm not the same size I was in high school. I was a Rams fan. I got old Jerome Bettis jersey. Some of you Notre Dame fans who played for Notre Dame. Sorry, Mike, but I didn't wear it. But if I had this on, I'd, I'd be clothed in that way with it. It'd, it'd cover me. That'd be my identity. It'd be who I am. In high school, I played football. This is my football jersey from high school. A little battered, a little rattered, or what am I trying to say? Tattered. Thank you. And uh, worn. And by the way, I didn't cut it to that length. That's just how cool our football jerseys were. They were that length. <laughs> and uh, I got a baseball jersey here. Got a couple of them, actually. One of my baseball jerseys from high school. I dug these all out of a bag in the basement this morning. And when I'd wear that, that's my team. Well, uh, you know, I'd put that on and it didn't matter what, what I had on underneath it. I put on my baseball jersey and I'd go play back when it fit. And it didn't matter what was under. This is who I am now. 
you see? And what the Bible teaches us is that if you trust Jesus Christ with your life, if you have, or if you would, if you haven't yet, he clothes you, he takes off your filthy garments, he clothes you with his righteousness, with pure garments, and you are now no longer who you were, you are someone new. You are no longer filthy, you're clean, you're no longer primarily a sinner, you're a saint who still happens to sin sometimes. But one day he's even gonna put an end to that. And you're clothed in his righteousness and that is now your team. Friends, this is uh, the doctrine that we believe about the work of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us. And not only did he go to the cross to accomplish it, he rose from the grave to show that that sacrifice was acceptable to God. And his substitution was perfect in my place. So uh, just uh, each week we've been reading from our statement of faith and maybe this morning, instead of doing it at the beginning, let's, let's close by reading it. And would you just read with me? We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death, victorious resurrection, constitute the only ground for salvation. Friends, uh, Jesus died the death that I alone have earned. He did. And then he rose from the grave to give me the life that he alone has earned. And it's really his alone. He gave himself up for me in my place and in yours. As we close this morning, I'm gonna pray. Uh, Pastor Dave's gonna come lead us as we take communion together and celebrate that, that union we have with Christ and his covering of us. And uh, we'll uh, wrap up our service in that way. Let me pray.